Now, this morning, we're going to take our Bible and we're going to go to Acts chapter 11 together. Acts chapter 11, continuing our series on the unstoppable church. Now, this morning, before we dig in, just by way in case um, you are uh, wondering what is going on differently with my posture or my, how I'm functioning, um, we don't want it to be a distraction from God's word today. 11 years ago, I suffered an injury as a youth pastor, stepped down on an all-nighter in the roller roly skate rink, and um, one of the teen guys uh, who was not very good on his roller skate stepped in beside me, or actually behind me, and he lost his footing and took out my legs, and I went up in the air and landed on his roller skate. And so we spent about three or four months at the chiropractor getting uh, that young, fit body back into shape, and, uh, and it was, and so... But since then, about two or three times a year, it'll lock up and uh, cause, cause some difficulty. And so um, I can bend down and do a lot of things down here. So I may just stand here like this, uh, but standing up straight is not possible. So, um, so that's the posture issue today. So, but let's not be distracted by that because God has given us a message that we can hone in on and be encouraged by and challenged with today. And, uh, and so we're going to look at that here in just a moment. We've uh, learned a lot about the unstoppable church throughout the book of Acts, and today we're going to come to a topic of encouragement from the life of Barnabas. Now, everybody enjoys being encouraged, whether it's by somebody's words or somebody's actions. We really appreciate that element of encouragement that comes into our life. And when you think about what encouragement is, it is somebody extending some support or maybe some confidence, maybe a, a, a hope given to somebody. And so with that in mind, when we look at this topic of encouragement, we study the early church who had been scattered out of Jerusalem, and they are looking for new places to gather, to live, and to proclaim the gospel. And so we come across an area here or a city of people in Antioch, and the early church is going to experience some incredible things there in Antioch. And the encourager that we study here of Barnabas we first find him in Acts chapter number 4, and it uh, says that his name was Joseph, or Joseph, and uh, the apostles meet him and give him a surname called Barnabas, or son of encouragement, and that's who this man is that we're going to study today. So let's look at Acts chapter 11, verse number 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen... They traveled as far as Phoenice or Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things, reports of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and so they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord." Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. 
So this morning, we look at our text together today, and we study the unstoppable encouragement that happened there in Antioch. Would you bow with me? Father, we're thankful this morning for the honor and privilege we have as your church to dig into your word. And so I pray that you would clear our minds and remove the distractions that would take us away from your truth. I thank you for the time of worship where we lift our voices together and we worship you, the one and only who is worthy of our adoration and praise. We look to live our life to the glory of God. And so this morning, as we look into this very important part of our day together, would you please remove me away from any distracting elements so that we can hear your message? I'm thankful that you've called me to shepherd and to proclaim your truth. And so with, um, with this serious moment, we come before you. Would you use it to shape our hearts and our minds? Would you allow it to bring conviction that would help us to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ? If there's anybody here today that doesn't know your son Jesus in a very personal way with a relationship that will last for all eternity, may today be that day where they see their, their need of one true hope in Jesus. So guide us now as we study in Jesus' name, amen. So in Acts chapter number 10 and chapter 11, we see this great transition that takes place here in our text. It's really one that is a, a turning point of the redemptive history. Because what has taken place is that these chapters unfold how the apostles in the early church understood the gospel and understood the true mission. And so they're going to take this gospel and proclaim it now to more than just the Jews. These chapters show us how the gospel was proclaimed to all people, including the Gentiles. And so our text today in chapter number 11, verse 19, it really picks up on the storyline from Stephen being stoned. You remember chapter number 7, verse 59 and 60. And the text tells us that they were scattered because of the persecution that was taking place, because of the martyrdom and the persecution of Stephen. And so in verse number 19, we see that they scattered to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and, and to Antioch. And they would function with the understanding of the old covenant and in verse number 19, it tells us that they went straight into these cities and they still proclaimed the truth, but they were in the understanding of the old covenant that it was for God's people, the Jews. And so they were only proclaiming this message to the Jews. They didn't know what happened in chapter number 10, that Peter met Cornelius and that this was an incredible step of transition in redemption history and that now the gospel was going to be proclaimed to the Gentiles it wasn't until verse number 20 that we're told that some heroes of the faith come from Cyprus and Cyrene to now begin to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the Gentile world. And so this is such an encouraging element of truth in the early church and some of the transition that takes place. So what is it that we learn about this unstoppable encouragement that happens? Well, in verses 19 through 21 is that there is always someone who needs encouragement. There is always somebody who can use an act of kindness that is going to show some support, that is going to show some confidence, that is going to give hope. What happens here in verse number 20 is that these heroes, as I said, come in to proclaim the mission to the Gentiles in Antioch. And it's really important to see that though they were under great persecution, They've left their home of Jerusalem and they have traveled 300 miles to Antioch and this is now where they're living. They're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to connect with new people. They're trying to see what is going to be next. And it's really important for us to see that in the midst of all of that, 
they still stay encouraged and focused by keeping their eyes on the Lord and by reminding themselves of what their mission is with the gospel. So they, they encourage themselves in the Lord. You know, sometimes our best support, our best care, our best hope, our, our greatest confidence comes from the Lord instead of other people. Too often, we're in the habit of looking for somebody else to be that source. And we desperately want a spouse or a parent or an employer or a coworker or a family member or a, a church member or even a pastor member to be the one who is going to be the, the source of confidence, the source of, of hope, the source of, of strength in our life in that way of encouragement. But sometimes, we just need to be still and allow the quietness of our heart to find great communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is our source of hope. He is the one that gives us our strength, our confidence. We're going to fail each other, aren't we? I mean, humanly speaking, we cannot but fail one another in our relationships and connections. And when that happens, if that's our source of encouragement... We're going to become depressed and in despair, and we're going to wonder where we're going to go next. That's when we must be reminded to find our encouragement in the quietness of our heart with that connecting point of the Lord. This morning on the way to church, our family uh, was singing a song. Um, I thought I brought... Yeah, here it is. Uh, Christ is Enough. We sing it in church all the time. It's an incredible song about the, our attention that Jesus Christ is, is really all enough, Here are the words, Christ is my reward and all my devotion. Now, there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Though every trial my soul, or through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back, because I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need, Christ, my all in all. Then look at the second verse. Now, we sing this all the time, and I hope when you sing it, you sing it with a heart of reflection, that it is honestly your, your source of encouragement, that he is your all in all. The joy of my salvation and this hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing, Jesus is here. To God be the glory. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you everything I need. Then it says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The Christians there in Antioch, they've got a lot going on in their life. They could use some encouragement, but they were not looking for outside sources or human sources of encouragement. They were finding themselves to be quiet in the will of the Lord, that Christ was certainly enough for them. And look at the key statement in this verse. It says that, and the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21. Because God was with them, their ministry was blessed. Their service was blessed because the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, we understand that there are many books today. There are many blogs. There are many articles. There are videos. There's curriculum that will help with church growth. The sources, the the resources of of how to help go to the next level in church growth. And though those can be wonderful resources based on other people's circumstances, 
we know that God has given us a very clear direction for how his church will continue to grow. There is spirit empowerment and spirit fulfillment that guides us in our preaching and in our evangelism, which helps him, God, to bless our ministry as he appoints people to his kingdom. That's why we're always making a high priority of the Bible as it is preached and taught, and that we will never waver from that. No reason to ever stand in the pulpit and close the Bible and say, let me just speak from experience. My experience is worthless to you in comparison to the word of God. We'll do our very best to not put people in the pulpit that will steer away from the truths and and properly dissecting God's word to our church family. We also want to make it a high priority for our evangelism. As you study the early church all throughout the book of Acts, God's hand of blessing was on them. And as God would guide them and strengthen them, the spirit empowerment and the spirit fulfillment, we would see that there were much people who were added to the church. There were many people who believed. And look at the result even here in verse number 21. And because the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Now understand, Antioch does not have some mega church happening. Antioch does not have an organized functioning force like the church in Jerusalem. These are refugees that have left Jerusalem looking to save their life, but then also looking to continue to proclaim God's truth. As they speak it only to the Jews with their understanding of the old covenant, some missionaries come along, some men with the gospel, who are going to now open that message to the Gentiles. Understand, the Gentiles have not been waiting for centuries for a coming Messiah. So so they're very much like, whoa, what is all of this old covenant stuff? What are you talking about? Even as you would study in Acts chapter 10 in Peter's approach with Cornelius. And then as this expansion now of the gospel to the Gentile nations, you're going to see how the approach is so completely different. We would find the Greeks who would trust Jesus Christ in the region of Galatia as we're studying on Wednesday night. And yet the Judaizers who wanted to just grab a hold of the old covenant and only press that as a, a pattern for true salvation was trying to bring them back to enslavement. But here in Antioch, Out of a pure heart and pure motive, they're just looking to make an impact and a difference. They're not excluding the Gentiles in verse number 19 because of their racist feelings towards the Greeks or the Gentiles. No, it's all they know at that moment until things begin to expand and we see God do amazing things. Remember, this is all transition with the early church. Look at verses 20 through 24. We see another lesson is that an encourager will thrive on building people. Now, an encourager loves to encourage people. What do you think about that point? That's an amazing point, isn't it? But notice the word love. Like it is a part of who they are. It is the, it's how they're made up. It's what they enjoy and it's a part of them. And that's why the son of encouragement, Barnabas, thrived on building people up. Look at verse number 22. The reports are coming back to Jerusalem that the believers in Antioch are are seeing many people come to a relationship in Jesus Christ. And so it's just like today that it's very crucial that we not just get see them saved, but that we pour into them and teach them, disciple them and train them and give proper encouragement to these new believers. And so Barnabas is headed to Antioch with that mission in mind. Now here at Parkway, 
We definitely want discipleship and teaching and pouring our life into other people to be a crucial element of our church. The DNA, what makes us up, what helps us to, to live and breathe as a church body. Last, uh, last week, we had almost 40 people involved in some phase of discipleship just last week. In the month of August, we had 81% of our Sunday morning attendance was connected in a connection class. 81%. Healthy churches push for 70%. In the month of September, we've dropped to 76%. So that's saying that three out of every four of you in here today was plugged into a connection class at 915. Now I understand we have a lot of issues and reasons why we can't make it at 915. And that's, that's, that's between you and God. I'm not the guy that's going to hold it over your head and smack you upside the head with it. This is just an opportunity and an element for you to be able to take part of. But you will find that the more you try to live in isolation in your Christian life, the enemy will use that as a, a foothold in trying to destroy your marriage, your home, your family, and your life altogether. I mean, that's not just some statement grabbed out of thin air. That is an actual fact that people who live in isolation with their Christian life and who do not engage in small groups, who are not a part of discipleship, who are not a part and interested in growing themselves or pouring into other people, that is a proven fact that what happens in their life is they will easily wander away, not only from God's church, but from God himself. And so that's why it's so important. Jerusalem church saw this. People were being saved and lives were being changed and transformed. This was an exciting thing in Antioch. But they realized the crucial element of teaching, proper teaching and preaching and discipleship had to take place. I'm also thankful that in our church environment that there are many people who are just doing life together. Having meals together, having coffee together, calling, texting, emailing, communicating and just living life together, going through the ups and downs, the joys, the trials, the heartaches, the mountain peaks. But as a church body, we continue to do life together. Encouragers want people to have a full and meaningful life. And for some of you in here, you're like, yeah, I don't care if so-and-so has a full and meaningful life. That's, that's their life. And that's just you. That's your personality. There are other people that are saying like, what can I do to help that person have a more full and meaningful life? That's because they have that spiritual gift of exhortation, that encouragement that just oozes out of them. And when these positive reports were coming out of Antioch to Jerusalem, this was very important that they sent the right man to Antioch. They did not want to send some rigid legalistic man to Antioch. They wanted to send an encourager. Somebody who is oozing out encouragement. Why? When you look at the city of Antioch, it was the third largest in the empire, only behind Rome and Alexandria. 300,000 people. But it was also told that this was a place of great commerce and a place of great cultural developments. And that happened because of the location of Antioch. It was kind of a trade route in the Roman Empire connecting the east from the west. And so there was a lot of movement that was going on, but it was also said that this was a place of great wickedness in Antioch. This was a place of pagan worship. This was a place of sexual um, immorality. These were things that were very much happening all the time. And so this vile place 
was where a church was being birthed and where people's lives were being changed. And so this city was taking the gospel and allowing it to make such an impact in people's lives that they were drastically being changed. And so why send Barnabas of all people? Well, this choice was crucial. They needed somebody who would embrace the change. Antioch was so different from Jerusalem. The Christians were embracing things so differently than they were in Jerusalem. Remember, this is transition with the early church. This is now gospel going to the Gentiles. This is, this is different. And so if they bring somebody in rigid and legalistic, they're going to say, okay, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on over here? No, 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 no. It needs to be done this way, this way, and this way. But Barnabas comes in, not turning a blind eye to sin, but see what he noticed in verse number 23? Or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 23. When he came, he had seen the grace of God, and he was glad. Something was happening in the hearts of these new believers. Now remember Barnabas. He was known in Acts chapter 4 for his generosity. Look it up, verse, 20, verse 36 and 37. But then he was also known for his warm acceptance to a man called Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at that in just a moment. So when verse number 24 describes him as a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and full of faith, it is no surprise why this would be the man sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. The question we have to ask ourselves is would we be on the top of somebody else's list to be sent as the exhorter and encourager? Are we the one that is able to partner with somebody in their Christian journey and to pour our life into their life? Are we the one that God would give and to um, allow us this privilege to mentor somebody else? Now, don't miss what happens because Barnabas, because he was who he was. Look at the end of verse number 24. Because Jerusalem sent him to Antioch and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to, um, to, to cleave to the Lord with great purpose in their heart, to be steadfast and to not change it says he was good, he was a whole, full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and because of all of that, much people was added unto the Lord. Paul comes in with this message that James would even write to the scattered Jews later on. Remember in James chapter 4, later in his letter, chapter 1, verse 1 says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered, what scattered them? The persecution of the church. So James writes this encouragement, and Paul's saying it 10, 20, 30 years before, and Paul is saying the same thing. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh, or draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. What words of exhortation and urging and insisting of instruction that says, continue to cleave to this new Lord you serve. And for the church today, the message has not changed. For that same submission to God, the same resistance of the devil, the same drawing nigh to God, the same uh, humbling of ourselves, purifying our hearts and cleansing our hands, this is the same calling today for us to draw nigh to God. 
The question we must ask ourselves is, can people see the grace of God at our church? Like a newcomer, do they, what do they experience at Parkway? Do they see legal relationships with God? Or do they sense the grace of God is, is evident in and through our lives? When we greet guests, we, we, can, we can sugarcoat it and we can throw a blanket on the crowd and say, we're just normal people trying to be more like Jesus Christ. And I like what Scott said today, it's okay not to be okay. And we can publicly say these statements, but we as the church have to ultimately believe that and live that so that we see people through the eyes of Jesus Christ and that we can understand how to extend that love and grace. And so what do we want it to look like? I think we, we want to be people who love sinners. I think we want to be a people who realize that we are no better than the next person and that we're guided by God's grace through the, the process of life and growth that we call sanctification. I think we're the first ones that are willing to admit that we're not perfect, but we're just another person on this journey. And this journey has a lot of ups and downs. And the reality of the Christian life is that it's not easy. And the call to discipleship is not cakewalk. The fight against the flesh, the fight against the enemy is real. And the supernatural world is all around us trying to destroy us. And will do everything in its power to do that. That's why we cannot resist the, the Spirit's work in our life. So let's quit quenching the Holy Spirit. Let, let's quit closing that door as soon as the Holy Spirit comes. And one thing I just love about Parkway is that all of these things describe who we are. Is that this is a group and a body of people that just love sinners. Why do you love sinners? Because you realize you're a big one too. I think we partner with Paul who says that he was the chief of all sinners. And if he can be the chief of all sinners, I don't know where that puts me in the ranking, but it's off the charts. And so I think we look at ourselves in a humbled way to realize that we can love sinners and that we're no better than anybody else that God brings through those doors. We just are who we are by the grace of God. And because of his work in our life, we want to see that same thing happen in other people's lives too. But realize that this did not just happen by chance. This happened because of believers who were intentional with the gospel. Remember verse number 19. Though they were only proclaiming it to the Jews, they were at least proclaiming the gospel news. Verse number 20. The Grecians, or the Grecians were given the gospel because some came from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they said, you know what, we've heard Peter embark with Cornelius, and there's something incredible here. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. And so they proclaimed the truth. Because God's hand of blessing was on their ministry, their service, and their work, many people were added to the church. Because it's growing, Jerusalem gets wind. They send Barnabas to encourage, to exhort, to urge. He sees the grace of God. He's happy. He's glad. He's excited. And because God uses Barnabas, more people come to Jesus. So then the last thing in verse 25 and 26. I mean, this is just one great thing after another. How can we take any more? Look at what happens. Encouragement is a sacrifice. It's an investment. And it's a call for patience. In verse 25, the growth was really too massive for Barnabas to handle alone. 
And so no doubt he probably prayed for direction on this. And somebody pops into his mind named Saul of Tarsus. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter number 9 because this is the encounter that Barnabas first had with Saul. Because what Barnabas does is he immediately thinks of the best man for this job. In chapter number 9, we studied this last week all all the way to verse number 19. This was the unstoppable change that happened when God took such a uh, wicked man in Saul and changed his heart. And we see in verse number 20, straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. But skip down to verse number 23. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill Saul. But their laying await was known of Saul. And so they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples, the followers of Jesus, remember the word disciples in the book of Acts is always referring to followers of Jesus Christ. This is not the twelve. But they took him by night and let him down by the well in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And they believed not that he was a disciple. (laughs) Well, I mean, Saul, you had that coming, right? I mean, you knew that. Like, dude, you've been in the top of the front page of the newspaper in Jerusalem. Nobody believes that you're a changed man. Oh, wait. There's the son of encouragement, though, because in verse 27, but Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem, and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Which when the brethren knew, they found this out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. And so Saul is going to spend 10 to 12 years now in Tarsus. So when we come to chapter number 11, we see that Saul is where he is, not only by the sovereign work of God, but God used a man by the name of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to bring Saul to Jerusalem to meet the apostles, to give great confidence that he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus, boldly proclaiming the gospel. And so as Saul spent these 10, 12 years in Tarsus, these were not wasted years. These were not lost. This was a time of quiet training. This would have been a time of preparation for his future service. It was probably some of the best years of Saul's life to be there in Tarsus, to be trained in the quietness and stillness, because in verse number 30, before we moved from chapter number 9, it said, or 31, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. They were edified, built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and they were multiplied. So here's what Barnabas is going to do. He's going to go after Saul again. Now, Tarsus is about a hundred-mile trip from Antioch, so this is a huge sacrifice. Barnabas will leave, and when he finally gets there, he's got to look for him. He's got to try to find him somewhere. Uh, This is way before the days of cell phones, and I don't think they had email. And uh, so it's not, you know, there's no ping to say, here I am, Saul, let's meet at the nearest Starbucks on the corner, and let's catch some coffee. I've got something to pitch to you, and I think this is going to be life-changing for you. The Bible tells us that Barnabas went looking for him to seek Saul, and that, that word seek to look for gives us more than just a a quick glance. 
It is motivated with such passion and zeal. It is a labor of love. It is that desperate looking for him. And so this great sacrifice is going to be very worth it. And so when they return to Antioch, Barnabas is going to use this time now to invest in the Christians and to invest in Saul. And this is going to happen for, uh, for a year. They're going to pour into the new converts. This was not a quick fix. This was not an in and out moment. This was not a, hey, uh, just listen, I've got 10 key points. If you memorize the 10 key points, you'll be good to go. No, Barnabas realized that encouraging and discipling and teaching is an investment, and we have to be patient, and we have to work through it. You realize there's sometimes in our life where we try to encourage somebody, and it lasts for a little while, and then something just changes. And, and that's disheartening. You're like, man, I, I really spent a lot of time with them. Or I really, you know, I listened to them on the phone. Or I, we would go back and forth with text messages. Or, you know, we, we sat together with hours of conversation. And you think that you had just, you've, you've really poured everything you have into them. Only for them to go up and then down and, and turn away from it. And that can be very disheartening. No doubt Saul and Barnabas are here embarking on something that's going to have ups and downs. We can't think for a moment that every new believer is just dynamic as a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, that church was like this church. We're, we've got ups and downs. We're fickle followers of Jesus. You know, we, we've got good days and bad days. And we remember our days in Jerusalem till we were scattered because of the persecution. We remember watching Stephen being martyred right before our eyes. Maybe we have flashbacks at the things that happened in our past, and we wonder, how in the world will I ever move past that? And so Saul and Barnabas are dealing with that with these new believers, and Barnabas may be even dealing with that with Saul himself as he's learning the way of the gospel. Now, what I love about the church in Antioch is that it's going to become a main hub for missionaries to be sent out to reach the Gentile world. This is going to be where where Saul, Paul, will launch out on his first missionary journey. It would be where much happens with the sake of the gospel. And so for that, today we can really say thank you to the Antioch church for the gospel we have today. Now, last thing in verse number 26 is when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and they taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. There's a lot of things that they will be called all throughout the book of Acts. You see that in your study guide, a lot of different names. But here they're going to be given the name Christians. Now understand, this was a term that was given by way of mockery. But the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, the church would embrace it and wear it as a badge of honor. You see, the I-A-N on the end of Christian is going to give the signal that it means a party of. And so the term literally means that a party of Christ, the party of Jesus Christ. Uh, there would be many people who would follow this same way that they would find their label in or on someone or something else. And today, as Christians, it becomes such a natural part. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ... It was the new label that was placed on us. And from the very first moment of being a believer, we have now been called Christian. But what does that really mean? Yes, we learned little Christ, but it means being a part of something greater, being labeled by Jesus Christ himself. In our day, there's a lot of associations and a lot of things to be labeled by. 
But the truth is, is that above everything else, we should want to be labeled by the party of Jesus Christ. There's the story that is told by the early church historian Eusebius. And he described a believer named Sanctus, who was from Lyons, France. He was tortured for Jesus Christ. And as they tortured him cruelly, they hoped to get him to say something that was evil or blasphemous towards God. And so they would ask him, what is your name? Only to have him reply, I am a Christian. They said, well, what nation do you belong to? I am a Christian. Well, what city were you born in? I am a Christian. His questionnaires began to to become angry over this. They said, are you a slave or a free man? His only reply, I am a Christian. No matter what they asked him about, he would only answer, I am a Christian. And this made his torturers all the more determined to break him, but they could not. And as he died with these words, I am a Christian, on his lips, he clearly identified doesn't matter what nation I come from, the city I was born in. My family name means nothing. My associations or my political parties, my place and ranking in society, or even the denomination that I call myself a part of, it means nothing to the lips that I say, I am a Christian, a party of Jesus Christ. 40,000 fans were on hand in Oakland Stadium when Ricky Henderson broke Lou Brock's career record of stolen bases. How many of you remember Ricky Henderson breaking that record? All right, seven baseball fans in here. Good. All right. Today is the last day of baseball season, and, uh, and so the playoffs start this week. Well, according to USA Today, Lou Brock, who had left baseball in 1979, had followed Ricky Henderson's career, and he was actually excited about his success. Realizing that Ricky would set a new record one day and shatter Lou Brock's record, here's what Lou said. I will be there the day it happens. Do you think I'm going to miss it now? Ricky did in 12 years what took me 19. He is amazing. You know, the real success stories in life are with people who can rejoice in the successes of others. Lou Brock. What Lou Brock did in cheering on Ricky Henderson should be a way of life in the church. Like, think about it. Few circumstances give us a better opportunity to exhibit God's grace than when someone succeeds and surpasses us in an area of our own strength and reputation. If you do not have the right voices in your life, you will not make the right choices. Having the right voices pouring in you means that you must invest in encouraging relationships. Saul, who soon became Paul, was taken under the wing by a kind, encouraging man who was the son of encouragement named Barnabas. But soon Paul would so quickly surpass his mentor. And with great success in the realm of the gospel message, Paul would be used far greater than Barnabas ever thought possible. And you know what? That was just fine with Barnabas. And I have no doubt that he was there every step of the way, cheering on that man from Tarsus 
who disciples wanted nothing to do with him, didn't believe him for one moment that there was a change. But it was Barnabas who said, let's go meet the apostles in Jerusalem. It was Barnabas who brought him to Caesarea, who sent him to Tarsus and said, hang out here for a little while. And then it was Barnabas 12 years later who said, I have got a mission from God for you and I to become a power-packed team to be used with the power of the gospel. And as they came back to Antioch, God continued to use these men far beyond what we really comprehend and understand today. And it all started with unstoppable encouragement. Thank you, Barney. And may we look to be that person in somebody's life today.